Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry. We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth. What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates? How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients? What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry, and what are companies doing about it? So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Thanks for joining us on the show today. We're joined by Tanya Thomas, uh, VP of Global Regulatory and Medical Affairs at Opian Pharma, um, who described themselves as a pharma company with a mission to create best-in-class medicines for the treatment of addictions and drug overdoses. They're headquartered in Santa Monica with additional offices in London. They were founded in 2009, and they're currently working on advancing their pipeline. Uh, And Tanya, you've just recently joined the company, is that right? Yes, I, I joined in November, and I'm very excited to be, you know, in this company with a, a very strong focus on addiction. So as you said, creating best-in-class medicines to treat addictions and drug overdose. And actually, our CEO created Narcan, the nasal spray, wow. which obviously is credited for saving, you know, tons of lives. And... Yeah, he's incredibly inspiring, and it's an incredibly inspiring company to work for. Not just opioid overdose, we have a pipeline, you know, focused on addiction, but obviously opioid overdose at the moment is such a significant public health crisis, and, you know, it's just being exacerbated at the moment with, um, you know, the increased availability and abuse of opioids, so synthetic opioids. So um, I really feel like an internal inspiration as well to be working there and you know making a huge impact um so yeah i'm really happy and so what's the current focus for your role you know joining a a small startup company you building the team out there is that you know in addition to the the problems that they're trying to tackle and the the challenges you know that they're looking to go up against um you know what are you focused on doing there over the first uh you know six months to a year So I'm uh, heading up the regulatory affairs and medical affairs functions. Um, So definitely looking at building out the team, Um, hiring. We've just posted for a regulatory affairs manager role and we'll be posting for a medical affairs director role soon Um, and with a focus, obviously, to work on our pipeline and successfully, in the end, launch those products. And they're so important. I remember back in 2000, it must have been 2008, 13 years ago, uh, the OxyContin Express was a documentary about the flight from Florida where physicians were prescribing at will uh, OxyContin and other drugs to uh, patients who were flying from, uh, from West Virginia, Kentucky, and there were entire towns destroyed by it. And fast forward 13, 14 years, oh, it's 2022, 14 years, and it's still happening. It's still a problem. And it's wonderful to see that there's a burgeoning pipeline in place to take care of and treat these patients. I mean, I feel absolutely the same way. Um, It's just an unbelievable problem when you, 
the more you learn about it, the more shocking it is, you know. Um, and thankfully, that Narcan is available, but definitely there's a lot of, you know, more opportunity there. Um, lives need to be saved, basically. Yeah, and I want to I want to pivot over to your career here because I took a look at your your journey over the past years and. You're, you're currently in regulatory affairs and uh, medical affairs, and a lot of your time you've spent in regulatory affairs recently. So I want to talk to you, perhaps, uh, maybe you could share what kind of drove you as a pharmacist into a career, to pursue a career in regulatory affairs versus other areas of pharma. Yep. You know, I actually started as a hospital pharmacist. So... Um... Looking back at that hospital pharmacy experience, that actually was very, very useful to me because it gave me, a, you know, the big picture of basically why we do what we do, because you really, really see what the impact, of, you know, of a drug has on someone who's sick. Um, and so that has really helped me actually in my industry role as well, just be grounded and know this is why we do what we do every day. But how I got into regulatory affairs was I, I knew I wanted to be an in industry and I had applied to absolutely every single industry job that there was out there. And I think I got like 60 rejections, honestly. I just could not get my foot in the door, which I think a lot of young pharmacists will relate to. Um, the ones that I interview, anyway, always tell me the story as well. Um, I ended up taking a job as a freelancer translating patient information leaflets from English to Greek and French. And then the company who I was doing a lot of the translations work for asked me, um, do you want to come in and be our in-house translator? And I just said yes, because I couldn't get a job in a pharmaceutical company. And first day on the job, my manager said, okay, we're starting a department called Regulatory Affairs. Do you want to be my first employee? And I said yes. That's incredible. Right? Yeah. And then she gave me a whole bunch of ICH guidelines and said, read the ICH guidelines and write a dossier for the, for the product that we're manufacturing downstairs. Talk about on the job training. I mean, how did, how did you even find out about a path into industry? Like, did you have somebody, a close personal contact that was in the industry? How did you find out about it as a career path? I mean, coming out of pharmacy school, you, you know, you know, you can either go into retail industry or hospital. Those were the three options available. And, you know, we did our rotation and our training because I studied pharmacy in the UK. So um, I did my rotation in hospital. And once you do your rotation somewhere, you just sort of end up in it. It's very difficult to move. Um, That's why I think the fellowship program is is just incredible. Uh, It's such a great opportunity for, for pharmacy students coming out of university to get that experience and to get their foot in the door and the networking and everything that valuable experience provides them. Well, I'm glad you mentioned London um, because you've been highly mobile geographically. Maybe you can talk our listeners through, um, you know, your geographic journey um, as you've dotted across the continents. Do do you you mind if I describe the, the ping pong that occurred as I looked at your LinkedIn, it was training in the UK. Then you were, you talked about already on here, training in the UK, uh, translating into Greek. So you were in, I saw that you were in Greece and then I think you went back to the UK and then back to Greece and then to the United Arab Emirates and now to the States for the last few years. And you're, 
in New Jersey, but you work for a company that's in the UK and on the West Coast. So I, I think there's something here to talk about. <laughs> if I say the story, it makes sense. But as you say it, it, it sounds disjointed. But honestly, it was, you know, studied pharmacy in London, couldn't get a job in industry. So moved back to Greece, which is my home country, and got that job in the generic, uh, ended up being a generic company, which did really well, by the way. Um, and then I got to the point where it's, that company was growing so much, I ended up heading up a regulatory affairs department of 12 people when I was very young. So it was my first job. And I felt like I wanted to get more intense training on regulatory affairs. Um, and the MHRA, which is the UK FDA, the UK Health Authority, was hiring at the time. Um, they were hiring 10 people. And they hired nine PhD students and me, who was non-PhD, because I had industry experience. And they wanted to see, it was like a test to see how, how I would do. Um, so I really, really learned regulatory affairs from the regulator's point of view in that job at MHRA. And then left MHRA to join Pfizer, Pfizer Greece um, and ended up being extremely lucky to be offered opportunities to move with Pfizer and so ended up um, relocating twice with Pfizer, once to uh, the UAE, to Dubai, to head up the Middle East region, and then once to the US. And what do you think enabled you to take these opportunities? What, what do you think positioned you? You talked about to get into the industry, you were denied from 60 applications. You're sitting here now as a, a vice president. Uh, what do you think it is about you that has enabled you to have this journey that you've experienced? Um, I think that I, I showed up consistently, just show up every day and do good work and um, laid the groundwork so that my company could depend on me. And so when those opportunities showed up, you know, I was the one that they asked. And then when those opportunities, when they did come and asked me, would you like to take this opportunity? We know you can do this. You know, I said, yes. And that's the advice I'd give anyone is be consistent and show up consistently at work. Like you don't have to excel every single day. And I think it took me a very long time to learn that. You just have to show up consistently so that when that opportunity comes, you know, they think of you. And then when that opportunity is offered to you, just say yes and don't self-sabotage. <laughs> <laughs> that That's really good advice. And you hit on something that is one of my pet peeves um, because a lot of students and fellows will reach out and the saying is, it's all about who you know. But it's about doing good work, being consistent, knowing, in my opinion, knowing that uh, having your company know that they, they can trust you when you're put into a place of responsibility. And it sounds like you've exemplified that. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not all about who you know, because I think you have to have some confidence in yourself as well. Like I've moved so many companies where I didn't know anyone. I'm just like, I'm confident that I know enough to then get to know people and then, you know, get to have those um, opportunities. There's a lot about being confident in yourself as well. Well, you were also put into a position, like you said, rather young to be leading a team. And so I'm curious, you know, looking back now, 
how would you assess your performance as a manager early on in your career, knowing what you know now and being in a, a VP role now? That's a tough question right there. I love it. Um, I definitely was more of a friendly manager back then. I didn't know how to take authority or I didn't know how to be neutral, you know, uh, and just generally through the years of being a manager, you start understanding that being a friend to your team is not what they need. Um, they need you to be a leader. They need you to, you know, support them, connect the, the dots for them to the vision that the company has. Remove barriers. Um, remove barriers, remove obstacles, exactly that. They don't need a friend, which, yeah, I think that every young manager maybe falls into that trap, or a lot of them do. Well, and clearly what you've been doing has been working. I mean, you were recently awarded the Who's Who International World Women Leader Award in Regulatory Affairs, and I heard you got to travel back to Greece for that. So you, you got to tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that was just an amazing experience and an amazing honor. Um, you know, Sergio, you're Greek too. so <laughs> Can I be an honorary Greek for the you time can. being? You Absolutely. Can. All are welcome. Um, Thank you. It, it was just such an honor, you know, to be to be awarded by your own home country. Like, what better honor could you receive? So that was really, really fun. I had an amazing evening there, um, you know, met some really incredible people and definitely used it, tr you know, tried to use it as a platform to inspire other women as well. And, you know... The younger generation who actually thinks if you start a career off in a small country like Greece, you know, how do you end up in the US or can you really succeed that much? So it's really about showing people that if you want something and if you're consistent at it, you can achieve anything. And I'm curious how, you know, how you have felt about the progress the industry's made in supporting women leaders. I, I have definitely seen a positive movement of women in leadership in pharma, uh, especially in, for example, R&D roles um, and also in big pharma, right? Um, there are lots of opportunities for women, I believe, but I do still think there's a lot more work to do. I'm definitely set on doing my part to help other women get there because I think a lot of us uh, have grown up with this mentality and this culture that we need to be grateful for where we are and we shouldn't advocate for ourselves. And um, we need to start doing that. And it's very uncomfortable. It really is. So it's really, uh, I'm set on helping other women sort of gain that confidence in themselves and gain that gravitas because that's what it's all about in the end. It's about having that gravitas and just having that confidence um, to be able to speak in any meeting, just like everyone else does. Um, so I would advise any young female pharmacist uh, who's joining a company to ask about a woman's networks. You know, most companies have them. They should really join. It's a great place. You know, it's a safe space for women to talk about issues they encounter. Um, you can let, you can get leadership skills, development skills, and it's a great place for networking as well. Yeah. And, and my hope is that in the next generation, this isn't a topic anymore. There's no glass ceiling. There's no fraction of, of pay here. 
Um, and the concept of imposter syndrome is a thing of the past as everyone just works towards, you know, you hire people and you grow people based on talent and production. But uh, it's, I feel fortunate to have a voice here and to be able to bring people on who are strong leaders in this area, because this is, this is, we do this to help grow people, bring people information. And, and Tanya, uh, you're, you're definitely an exemplify what it means to be a leader here. And it's great to see you recognized. Um, now, as, as we think about, you know, I, I'm just kind of amazed by the way that you've kind of morphed into, I, I didn't know this. I, we all know each other. For those who are listening, the three of us know each other from the past. And so I'm learning about Tanya here and I'm getting a peek in here. And what I've prepared has completely changed because I see Tanya in a different light right now. Um, but part of what we do is we bring information to people trying to grow their career. And so as you think about your, you started as a people manager and Sergio hit on that a little bit, but then you moved into roles where you were an individual contributor. And now you're back in a role where you're about to grow a, a division and a large part of your company. So what have you, what have you done as you've, you know, how would you, how have you worked to shift from, the, that people manager to individual contributor to uh, people manager again. And, and what, what would you say would be a couple of key attributes that have enabled that? Good question. Um, I think uh, moving from people manager to individual contributor is actually more difficult <laughs> than the opposite. Um, for me, anyway, it could be different for other people, but what helped me in becoming an individual contributor <clears throat> after being a people manager was to <laughs> to have train myself to sit in the discomfort of work of doing the work myself right and you're used to delegating and you're used to just reviewing and stuff like that and it's actually really uncomfortable in the beginning but it, I had to practice doing that. And once you actually sit in that discomfort and you just say, I'm going to work through this and this is what I'm going to do, you, um, well, I was able to, to get through that. And then it's quite, you just shift your mindset from people manager to individual contributor. But I definitely am more of a manager. I am definitely enjoy coaching, you know, my team and both roles are, have pros and cons and people always gravitate towards one or the other. I, I also don't really think it's binary. Like to me, there are individual contributor roles where you have to exert significant leadership ability and, and managerial ability, um, you know, as opposed to stuff that's, you know, perhaps, you know, more tactical. Like to, to me, there's shades of, of gray there. Somebody who's you know, perhaps a, a biostatistician, you know, who's working on a particular deliverable um, as opposed to somebody, you know, in, in regulatory affairs or regulatory strategy where, I mean, part of your role is leading a cross-functional team, you know, on major deliverables, you know, major regulatory meetings and briefing documents and things like that. And, you know, for, for a lot of those activities, even as an individual contributor, it, it feels like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like there's a lot of, uh, of leadership skills that are that are still required for that. Yeah, and in some cases, it's even more difficult because you don't have that line reporting to you. So you have to influence through the matrix, as we say, <laughs> right? Well, in addition to, you know, all of the challenges of, uh, 
you know, learning new roles and, and moving companies, you know, along the way you, uh, you started a family. Um, and so I'm curious how you know, family considerations weighed into your decision-making process along the way. You know, did you ever feel, um, you know, either compelled to move or not move, you know, because mm. of family considerations and how did you juggle that? You know, that's a really great question, Sergio, because, um, I have had opportunities which were incredible, which I said no to because of my family. Um, usually, you know, you wouldn't think it looking at my resume, but um, I think you need to be very on the same page with your partner about moving somewhere. And in terms of relocation, like that's a whole other podcast we can do. But, um, you know, you're moving country, you're learning a new job, usually you're learning maybe a new language, you're learning new culture, new cultures, new norms, making new friends again. So many simple things you don't even take into consideration. Um, it's such a huge decision and you really have to be on the same page with your partner in order to, you know, to do something like that, to relocate. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I think people are afraid about in considering, you know, opportunities that would have them move, you know, either across the world or across continents, um, is that these opportunities may not come again. I mean, you alluded to some really amazing opportunities that you, you declined for, for family reasons, but, you know, here you are, you're a VP of regulatory and medical affairs. And so clearly, you know, the, the opportunities, it seems like they'll still come. Um, and so, you know, I, you tell me if you disagree, but uh, it seems like the best advice to people is, you know, do what's right for, for your personal situation and that those opportunities will come if you, if you wait for them. That's exactly the advice I gave to someone this week, actually, who called me up and asked me about um, my advice for her to move to California when she has two kids in middle school. And I just said, you know, it's exactly that. It's your personal um, situation and you need to be comfortable with it. You know, there's a statistic that 50% of relocations fail because of the partner not being able to relocate properly, um, successfully. So that it's just so important that you're all on the same page and you have worked all of this stuff out before you say yes to, to an opportunity like that. I think it'll be interesting to monitor how the pandemic and virtual uh, working virtually kind of changes that paradigm. Because I can tell you that I work with people from all over the world who work East Coast hours primarily because that's where the bulk of the team is. So if you're, and interestingly, we do have listeners from uh, from Europe. We have listeners from actually all over the globe, which has been really fun to see. And and so what I've observed and is that uh, you can live pretty much anywhere. Half the time. People don't even know that their colleagues have moved across the U.S., across the globe, because they're still working the same hours and they've just adjusted. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over years, where that barrier to entry into a position in an East Coast company is now lower because you don't you have to maybe you have to travel there once a week, once a month, whatever it may be. So that that may lower the barrier to international workers, to uh, to to geographical limitations in the U.S. and uh, it will be fun to see. 
feels like it opens up the talent pool, really. Completely. Like you, you can get the best people regardless of where they are on the planet, really, at this point. I, I could be doing what I'm doing now in Buffalo. I don't. I love Buffalo. I don't necessarily want to go back, but I I can tell you that it. That, you know, I moved here for a job, and now I'm I'm sitting here going, huh? If the if I could rewind eight years, maybe I could have done that and stayed in Buffalo, and my wife could have kept her business. And but we sacrificed. My wife picked up. She left her business and came here. So had she not been a strong partner, fifty. What is it? It's a coin flip that that could have failed. Yeah, I agree. And then take it one step further. We can all just move to Greece and do our jobs. <laughs> now you're on the talking. Greek island. I've heard it's I've heard it's beautiful, and uh, the food the food is excellent. Well, I think this calls for a remote uh, recording of the podcast. Yeah. Um, we'll see, uh, paging Jim. Uh, <laughs> if we can anyway. if we can work remotely, we can record remotely, and there's no time limitations here. I like where this is going. This is really materializing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you hit on. The, the considerations of relocating your family and being on the same page as your partner is being really important. But the, the other thing that we've been dealing with over the past couple of years is parenting in the age of right. COVID. And so, and now you, you've got a really challenging, you know, job that you've just stepped into. So I'm wondering, you know, what are the things that you've learned over the past couple of years that have helped you, you know, continue driving a successful career, but also, you know, tending to your, to your family? Yeah, that's a really great question Um, and definitely something I work very hard at. So I think that you have to be very disciplined when you are, you know, when I'm at work, I'm intentionally at work. And when I'm with my daughter, I'm intentionally with her. Um, I have boundaries, you know, I set my boundaries very clearly. I stick to a a very disciplined um, day you know, in time slots. And, you know, for example, I make my daughter go to sleep by eight o'clock. She, she never stays up past eight, you know. Um, I'm up every morning very early. I work out in the morning before work because that helps me. And so the other huge um, thing that has helped me in the past couple of years is managing my own personal energy. And I think that we all have a responsibility to manage our own personal energy Um, find what works for you and bring it into your day. And then the last thing that I would add is focus on the good habits and not the bad habits. If you pick up good habits, that helps you, you know, maintain this sort of work-life harmony as Jeff Bezos calls it. He doesn't like saying work-life balance because that's a trade-off between work and life. And I love that concept. It's a work-life harmony. I'm so impressed to hear about the like rigorous scheduling of the day and like slots and things like that. Um, but I, I have found, and I, I tend to be the same way. My preference is to have a really you know structured day and know exactly you know what I have ahead of me. I have found over the past couple of years that I've had to like ebb and flow um, with the changes of the day and like potty training a toddler. You became a parent. It's, it's felt, and I, so I'm curious, like if you have, if you've felt the same thing over the past couple of years that you've had to sort of be more flexible with, you know, the, the demands of parenting and, and work. Like I, I, I go back and forth throughout the day, you know, between a meeting and then helping to feed it, you know, our son. And then, you know, um, it's just back and forth and back and forth, um, which has been really, it's, it's been one of the more challenging parts of working and parenting and COVID for me anyway. 
No, I mean, definitely the past couple of years have been crazy, especially when the kids were at home Zoom, Zoom schooling. Um, I just find that sticking to a routine helps me and helps, you know, her as well, my, my daughter, to not um, sort of, it calms, you know, it calms us to know what to expect. So even though all of the crazy pandemic stuff was going on, we still had stuck to a routine and she was still, you know, she still knew what, what to expect next. I don't know. That's what worked for me. And I, I feel like we were all in the same position at the same time. So we were all kind of understanding of each other. Yeah, I don't think anyone would uh, fault anyone at this point, anyone else at this point for how you responded to the pandemic. And, you know, when you have, I know I experience it with childcare and I've talked about it on prior episodes of, uh, if you, if you didn't hear my experience in my interview, um, listen back. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was an interesting story. I, I don't care to retell it, but uh, it was it's it's an adjustment, um, and and having that schedule is really important for me. I had to, similar to Sergio, get become more okay with breaking out of my schedule, and I, but I also get to see my kids grow up. We also had younger kids during the pandemic. we did. I'll just, I'll right. just call that out. Like right. we're dealing with you know kids in diapers and potty training and kind of, you know, and that sort of stuff. So I, and I, not to say that that's more or less challenging. I think it's just different. And I've, I've spoken with plenty of colleagues who've had older, you know, kids during the pandemic and that it, it brings a whole suite of challenges there. Um, but, you know, it, perhaps the best advice is, you know, you just have to find what works for you um, yeah. and hopefully find an employer um, that's willing to that's be flexible, um, you know, along with you. And in a way, you you got to experience your young, you know, all those years with your young child at home. That's amazing. Sometimes you have to look at the positives as well. Yeah, Sergio, your little man and, and my little guy, my younger guy, they probably don't even know us not in the house. I used to I used to go into the city, uh, come home, step over the gate, not eat a thing, step over the gate, go upstairs, kiss my kids goodnight, and that would be my day because I'd, I'd leave before they woke up. And I come home as they were going to bed because, like you, Tanya, you said that you're you put your your daughter to bed at eight o'clock every night. Best advice I would give to parents: put your kids down early. It, they they sleep great. Get them on that routine down early, and you get to be an adult after they go to bed. Love it. That's my favorite thing. But that was the life before, and now I'm the I'm the morning guy. I'm up early every day. I spend the morning with my older son. My younger son sleeps in. We I make breakfast for everyone, and then I'm I'm still at my desk early and I still, I'm still tending to whatever needs to get done early, but I've watched my, and experienced my two sons grow up and it's a really, I feel really fortunate to be in that position, but I feel like uh, we're getting towards the end of this episode here. Um, Tanya, really great connecting again. Really, I, I learned a lot about you that I didn't know before. I just want to say, Echaristo. Uh, thank you very much. I got to be the honorary Greek, so I, I wanted to break out my my favorite word in my favorite Greek word. And it's pretty my, good. Pretty good. Did, did I hit on the pronunciation? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Not awful. All right. But thank you very much. We really appreciate you taking the time here. Um, good luck growing out your team. Um, it's a really exciting time, it sounds, over there. And hopefully we can connect either on the podcast or off again soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to catching up again soon to hear about how things are going with uh, with the new company and catch up on, on everything else. Thank you so much. This was so fun and I look forward to it. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help. Until next time, take care and stay safe.